0: I'm still eating. (laughs) I did... You know I was telling you yesterday about the waking up at 5.30 Mm -hmm. and then falling back asleep asleep and not waking up till Mm 8. Guess what I did today? Did you do the exact same thing? I did the exact same thing.
1: (laughs) What a surprise. (laughs)
0: After saying that I just need to get up at 5.30, I woke up and just went back to sleep. Good morning. You're listening to the Brood for Work podcast with Cameron and Tom. The podcast for coffee lovers and scientists.
1: Off for anyone who just wants a podcast to throw on and learn something new.
0: So, what have you been drinking this week, Tom?
1: So, I have been drinking... Well, you know me. I'm a huge fan of Panama coffees because, I don't know, I've just always enjoyed them. So, this week, I have been drinking a Panama from, I think, is it Huddersfield where they're from? Um, Darkwoods. And it is the Lachweller Panama, which is the farm that it comes from. And it is a red honey Kachura. And this type of coffee is exclusive to Darkwoods, which I think is pretty cool. So this farm just made it specifically for them. It's not, I don't know, it's not quite the usual sort of Panama. It's a bit different. Not quite as light, I'd say. It's more medium roast. So I've been getting things like cherry, toffee, rape from it, whereas usually you'd get currants and things like that.
0: I must say, I'm not that experienced with Panama coffees. Yeah, personally. I haven't had that many. I think I've had one.
1: Yeah. Would that have been the one in Roost that you had that time? Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. I'd say traditionally what you're looking for in a Panama is, think of it like the coffee equivalent of an IPA. It's meant to be really juicy and it just smacks you around the face with it. Um, But this one's not been doing that so much. It's much more balanced, which I wasn't expecting. It was almost kind of shocking when I first had it. Yeah. And if you've been drinking that at home... I've been doing that at home, yeah, with a V60. Yeah. Meant to try it with an AeroPress, but just haven't got around to it because I've been enjoying V60 too much.
0: Yeah, V60s are just the best. I I find V60s just give a good balance of all the qualities you want in a coffee, especially us who both prefer lighter roasts. Definitely. I think V60s just give that even balance. You don't, it's not too oily, but it's not absent of all the oils. Like, you get too many oils from an Aeropress, and then you just get no oils from the nature of a Chemex with their type of filter. Mm. So I think a V60, I just find, it gives that nice balance.
1: Yeah, I feel like with an Aeropress, it's obviously essentially piggybacking off a French press or a cafetiere, whatever you want to call it. So it's going to be, at its core, more suited to medium to darker roasts, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I I think
0: definitely medium.
1: The fact that some people use it to make espresso kind of shows you what it's suited to, really. Or rather, quasi-espresso, I suppose.
0: Yeah, the good thing about AeroPresses is that they are just so versatile. I feel like they're really good for people starting out with coffee, because I think they're really forgiving as well. Oh, absolutely. Whereas V60s, there's a bit more of a learning curve to it.
1: (laughs) Definitely. I think the first few times I tried to make a V60... um. I didn't really know much about ratios or how to do pause properly or how long to do your pause for. I think I just kind of went for it and it wasn't an amazing cup of coffee.
0: <laughs> no. So I have been drinking a coffee from Pact, who, for those of you who don't know, are a roasters who deliver straight to your door in the UK. So they roast on the same day that they ship. So you tend to get like the freshest coffee. Possibly, unless you know like a local roaster nearby and know what day they roast on, there's no way of getting fresher coffee. It's literally a day off roast. They have a high-end tier called the Microlot range. So I've been drinking the Miraflores Labatica and it's from Colombia, grown by Alfredo Antonio Silva, which is a roaster who, a producer even, who does a lot with Pact. Like he's, I've had a few of his coffees and I recognise that name quite... Instantly at this point, to be honest. It's very acidic coffee. It's got a really nice black tea and cherry notes. It's quite sweet and just extremely floral. It's got a really thick, like, body to mm. it. I mean, the bo- it's not a really good way of describing it because the mouth feels really thin. But it's, like, r- a really, like, flavoursome coffee. Mm.
1: Which is strange to me because... Um... As up to maybe six months ago, it's my, my opinion on Colombian coffees has just flipped around. It used to be kind of synonymous with kind of fairly regular, middle-of-the-road, average coffees. But recently, people working with Pact and Square Miles, another one, who's done some fantastic Colombians. You've been getting these really, really bold flavours from Colombia all of a sudden, and it's absolutely fantastic, I think.
0: Yeah, bold is what I'm wanting to find when, I, when I'm describing this coffee. It is extremely bold. Mm. And I think that is generally a thing that's coming out of Colombia at the moment, as the third wave of specialty coffee is progressing. Yeah, I think Colombia is one of them origins that are trying to make that high quality coffee. And I don't. I think Brazil's trying, but I think Brazil isn't quite there yet. I think they stick yeah. to their earthy, darker tones in Brazil coffees. Whereas I think Colombia are just trying to experiment a bit more. Agreed, yeah. Which is really nice to see. And I actually went to Society earlier this week, Society Cafe, my cafe of choice in Bristol. Would you believe it? I went in and asked for the AeroPress and then looked to my left on the board that actually lists what coffee they have in. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when I went to London for a little coffee tour? Oh yeah, of course, yeah. And I went to Origin mm-hmm. and tried one of their coffees. Yep. It was the same coffee. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and would you believe it? It was just as good. It was a Kassona Geisha. Oh, Geisha, a Natural yes. coffee. And oh my God, it was absolutely beautiful. It's such an amazing coffee. It's a Geisha and it's a natural process. So you get all that like really like fruity juiciness mm-hmm. from the natural cherry. Yeah. It is absolutely incredible.
1: Some people aren't fans of um, natural coffees, but I think you can't top a natural coffee. I I
0: so prefer the natural sweetness over a washed mm -hmm. coffee. It's like night and day to me. It especially
1: lends itself to things with those floral flavors like Kenyans and Panamas and the new Colombians.
0: Definitely. Although it's hard
1: to find natural Colombians, to be
0: honest. So I had it in an Aeropress at Society. But at Origin Cafe, I had it in a Kalita Wave, and that's the other place that I had a Kalita Wave, Tom. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, right, yeah.
0: Who <laughs> tried to remember the other week? Yeah. <laughs> so it gives off a really strong strawberry nose, and then you actually drink it, and it is just stewed strawberry. That it's is It's just incredible. such a sweet, sweet strawberry. And then it's got some apricot notes mm. in there, like really subtle apricot notes, And some floral jasmine as well thrown in. And it is just an amazing coffee. And I think that might be my favorite coffee that I've... One of the favorite coffees that I've ever had. Nice. And I had the pleasure of going into society and seeing that on the board. And I was like, yes, please. So then I proceeded to go in for the next... For the preceding two days. (laughs) So a total of three days just drinking the Aeropress. And Radu was like, dude... (laughs) <laughs> Stop coming in here and <laughs> getting error prices. You're spending too much. He's the head barista at Society <laughs> and also, as I recently found out, yeah. came second place in the Ooh. UK Latte Art Championship. Rather to him. Absolutely, congratulations. But yeah, it's it's great because every time I go into society now, he always asks me how my day is and stuff like this, and it's hmm. just now that he's recognising me and knows my name and stuff. It's just that little bit extra that you want from yeah, a coffee shop. Yeah, it's nice
1: when that happens. Yeah. Um. So I go to this little one on the street of Fosgate in York, where I live, called Kiosk. And it's just, just little things like that. And they play really cool, chill music. Like, it could be Bon Iver. It could be Mac DeMarco. It could be some weird Tibetan monk singing, which was mm. a strange experience, not going to lie.
0: So that brings us nicely onto the... Uh, music section. Yeah,
1: that's a nice segue there.
0: So I've been listening to a lot of Olaf Arnolds who's an Icelandic instrumentalist. The vast, vast majority of his music just doesn't have vocals in it. Yeah. And when they do, it's really like subdued, really calming. Often you can't really like pick out the vocals from the music. They're really well intertwined. Yeah. Um, it's quite haunting. Like, But oh my god. It is the music to work to Yeah It's so peaceful Like it really is just like A whole encapsulation of just how you want to be feeling when you're working Yeah It's really really good And I can't recommend him any any higher For, for someone who wants to just sit down and chill mm. Like so if you're doing work If you're reading It's just really good like atmospheric ambient music Yeah I can't suggest like a specific song, mm-hmm. but if you just go on Spotify and just go to like a best of Olaf Ronald's playlist, yeah. it is just incredible and you will not be sorry.
1: T- tacking on to that, um, two other funnily enough Icelandic people I would recommend to you and to anyone listening. Neither were instrumental per se, but they use instrumental parts. You've probably heard of Bjork, obviously. Yeah. I mean, Bjork is Bjork. And also a avant rock band called Sigur Rós. And they kind of use that sort of similar thing. And the singer actually does this really interesting thing, which is he basically only sings in falsetto um, and kind of uses this strange made-up language, which is a combination of kind of nonsensical words and Icelandic. So you have no idea what he's singing about, but it's really relaxing and nice.
0: Yeah, because when I'm working, I don't want to be listening to music with actual like words in
1: One that I've not listened to for a while but still kind of hold quite dear to me um, is the final album from Bombay Bicycle Club, So Long, See You Tomorrow. It's a really amazing album because the lead into the first song starts with some synth sounds. Each song kind of flows into the next and then the album ends with the same synth sound. So if you loop the album, it just keeps going forever.
0: I've never noticed
1: that. It's really cool. Um, If you look at the album art as well, it's the same sort of idea with everything repeating round. Yeah. Um, And then what I've been listening to recently, which I've just been, it's the most recent record that I picked up actually from a turntable. Um, It is a Scottish ambient slash a genre of music called intelligent dance music, which is essentially, it's a form of EDM in a way, but it's kind of experimental sounds uh, kind of, hard to dance to, weird rhythms, time which just don't make sense. Kind of almost, like, artistic in a way. So this artist that I've been listening to is called Boards of Canada, and their most famous album is probably this one called Music Has the Right to Children, but the one that I'm listening to is the Campfire Headphase, and it is just perfect to throw on and just focus, because most of the songs have some sort of steady drum beat in them, so you can kind of focus in, but it's still just kind of weird noise which is really cool to listen to.
0: I'll give that a listen.
1: I would recommend the song to you and anyone who's listening, Dave Van Cowboy. That's probably the most traditional song format.
0: So now, Tom, we will delve into the realm of science. Ooh-hoo, here we go. I'm a physiologist and you're a psychologist. Indeed. Both in our third years at uni and both wanting to do PhDs. So we're both super interested in our fields. And part of third year is that we are inundated with a hell load of papers to read.
1: Of our own doing, I mean. We put this upon ourselves.
0: Yeah, we did. And it is amazing. It is great. So I've picked out my favourite paper of this week. So our module at the moment is focusing on the heart in health and disease. We've been looking at a certain receptor in the heart. That is responsible for calcium release from the calcium stores within the cardiac cell the cardiac muscle Mm -hmm. these receptors allow the calcium to be released from these internal stores which then can trigger the contraction of the cell okay and it's a really really highly complex mechanism that one of my lecturers is the leading expert in okay that's cool He basically has discovered a lot of this stuff, and he's been working on it for 30 to 40 years. And so these receptors are really highly complex. And the problem that we have with them is that up until recently, we haven't been able to see them okay, or completely accurately analyze their activity. Mm. Because they're an internal receptor, they're not on the surface of the membrane.
1: So hard to kind of measure or...
0: yeah, we can't image them or, yeah, examine them. And they are really, really tiny. That's
1: one of the big problems with psychology, obviously, is if it's happening in the brain, how do you measure that? Yeah. I mean, there's a way around that with some things that I'll obviously tell you about in a bit with fMRIs and things like that.
0: So recently they discovered a new way of imaging them. Mhm. So new imaging techniques have been developed based on time multiplexed observation of single fluorescent molecules.
1: And um, in plain English,
0: <laughs> so this just means it's taking different images at different times. Okay, yeah. And basically like averaging their fluorescence. Right. So they'll add a chemical in. Mm-hmm. it basically allows us to image molecules that are way smaller than the wavelength through standard microscopy, okay, so obviously, because we're using fluorescence, the weight wa- with the resolution that we're limited to is just down to the wavelength of light, yeah, because you can't see anything that's shorter than the wavelength of light when using fluorescence, okay and there isn't any way of using electron microscopy in this in within a cell. Mhm. Um but basically these tape images of these fluorescent like just blobs of light are basically all that we see. Okay. And they average them out using a really highly complex technique like I'm, I absolutely I'm nowhere near being able to understand it. Yeah. They managed to get massive resolution out of these. Okay. And we can basically now see these ryanodine receptors, which is what the receptors are. Okay, that's cool. And he basically found out that they basically automatically organize themselves into clusters, yeah. which was previously unknown. It was assumed that they did organize themselves into these clusters, but the clusters were then believed to contain a roughly 100 to 150 receptors. Mm-hmm. Whereas this paper showed that it's actually way, way smaller than that. It's actually only like ten to fifteen receptors All right, okay. in the average cluster. They basically managed to do this because the assumptions made in previous papers included stuff like the clusters were completely packed full of these receptors. Yeah. And the clusters were always spherical, uh, circular even, because it's on a singular plane. Mm. Whereas this paper also found because we can now image them. Yeah that they're mostly crescent-shaped.
1: So, basically, everything the previous papers found was wrong. Exactly. Or rather, not not wrong, but due to the technology wasn't available, it was the best exactly. educated guess they could make at the time.
0: Exactly. They had to make assumptions yeah. that just just happened to be incorrect. Yeah, that happens. Which, which happens in science. Mm-hmm. But the thing that is really interesting about this is that there's no structural proteins that organize them in this way, mm. and which is actually quite rare for this kind of thing to happen stochastically. Um, but they do. It happens. And they actually organize themselves, these clusters, into double rows along the Z-line of a sarcomere. So, this is the junction between the actual section of the muscles that contract. Yeah. So, in a a cell, in a cell muscle, you've got repeated segments that will all contract together to produce an overall shortening of the cell. Okay. And so, these receptors line up in double lines across these junctions between the segments Hmm. called the Z-lines. And you get more larger clusters along these lines, okay. but you do get random small clusters between the lines, yeah. which we don't fully know mm-hmm. why. The average cluster size was around 15 to 20, okay. and it's semi exp- It's an exponential decrease after that. So you will get a few that are up in high numbers, but r- very, very little.
1: Yeah really fascinating i like you
0: explained it well as well there
1: because i've come from knowing absolutely nothing about this and now i know something
0: i mean that's hope that's hopefully the goal of this podcast is to
1: if people come away knowing something two new things about
0: science that'll be good enough for me yeah we'll we'll get better at summarizing them and mm. um, like my aim is to uh actually make i'm just going straight from the paper here yeah whereas hopefully once we get better at like doing this will actually like summarize the points in bullet points so that we can
1: that's what i've attempted to do so um i'm not sure how well i've summarized it but i've tried to summarize mine so i was looking at a paper by berenz et al from last year september of last year And the title of this paper is Working Memory Network Alterations in High-Functioning Adolescents with an Autism Spectrum Disorder. There's a bit of a discrepancy between whether people are diagnosed with Autistic Spectrum Disorder or Asperger's. Technically, Asperger's is a form of autism, but it's generally easier to diagnose them separately because there's behavioral differences between them. Generally, Asperger's is more high-functioning. Not to say that autism can't be high-functioning as well which is high function essentially means that you're not hugely impaired on a day-to-day basis. So you can have interactions with people, um, you can hold a job, that sort of thing. That's all high function means. So if someone's low function, that means they'll need a carer to help them do things, or they might even live in an assisted care facility. Yeah. So this study was essentially um, examining a concept of memory called working memory, which is essentially a form of... I suppose you can look at it as a form of short-term memory. So, working memory is split into three areas, um, and it was described in 1968 by two psychologists called Atkinson and Schifrin, and it's still one of the most pervasive models of memory to this day. So, they did something right. So, it's generally split into three areas. The central area is called the central executive, which is kind of responsible for overall processing, attention directing, suppressing information that's not needed, that sort of thing. You've then got the phonological loop, which is for auditory and phonological, i.e. spoken and written information. And then you've got the visuospatial sketchpad area, which is responsible for, say, if you wanted to remember how to get to somewhere and you create a map in your head, it's for things like that, so visual information that you remember, essentially. Um, And generally, it's been assumed that people with autism have deficits in some areas of working memory. Generally, um, it is a deficit in the spatial areas. Again, why, we don't know, which is what this paper is generally aiming to look at. So, they had 13 participants, one had autistic spectrum disorder, seven had Asperger's, and five had a kind of unspecified form of autism. Um, And then they had a control group of 13, what we call neurotypical adolescents, who were essentially used to compare them to. They measured them using functional MRI, or magnetic resonance imaging, I guess in layman's terms, a brain scan. Yeah. And they got them to perform what is known as a N-back test, which is a condition where so they had a one-back and a two-back condition. And what this means is in a one back condition, participants had to press yes on the keyboard or whatever they were doing it on when the same picture was presented twice in a row. And if not, they had to press no. So essentially you see the image and then you see it once afterwards and you press yes. That's what the one back is. The two back is they had to press yes when the picture that they're seeing matched the one that had been presented two pictures ago. Uh, so that's why the one and two back comes from. Literally one back yeah. and two back from the picture they're looking at.
0: I can tell I would be horrendous at this time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, you might have a deficit in visual spatial working memory in that case. Yeah. <laughs> so these pictures of faces and pictures of houses, 80 pictures in each condition. Here is what they found. So essentially, working memory performance uh, for people on the artistic spectrum was... Kind of inhibited essentially but only when they were testing it to the absolute limit of their memories if they were just testing it regularly uh, there wasn't a significant difference in memory but ad- adolescents who had what we're going to call asd just for short because i'm lazy had lower uh, global efficiency in the network of working memory compared to the control group so essentially Whatever is going on in their area of the brain associated with working memory, they're not utilising it as effectively on both hemispheres, which is kind of fascinating. And this was correlated with total problem solved, language ability as well, and during testing and just when resting as well. So yeah, it's really fascinating as to why that happens. Um, It's kind of one of the first studies of its kind, so there's not much that they can conclude other than, yes... There is a difference in MRI markers in terms of brain organisation, but they can't really say why, which is kind of a problem in itself. And the fact that they only had something like 26 participants was also a problem. But it's still an interesting study in terms of relatively new technology being applied in a way that it's never been applied before.
0: Yeah, I think that's what I'm really loving now about learning about stuff that's currently ongoing like my paper was only from last year yeah is it's all using the newest of technologies that just people didn't have yeah. access to in the past absolutely cutting edge and so yeah. we're really we're really on the yeah cutting edge of science right now and it's really quite fascinating and I'm really loving this yeah I
1: mean the experiments and studies maybe don't have the some of the previous literature to back it up in terms of well-established testing. But in terms of new ways of testing it, it is... Again, it remains to be seen as to whether these methods that these people are using now will hold up or whether they're going to be replicated. But it's still fascinating to see all these new technologies being used.
0: I just want to slip in a little story here. Okay. (laughs) I also found out this week. Go for it. While watching... One of David Eisner's lectures, who is another expert in cardiac myocytes, Mm -hmm. he starts off his presentation to the Physiological Society by telling a little story. Okay. And I just want to relay this to you because I found it genuinely quite funny. So when we didn't actually know anything about the heart, Sidney Ringer, a scientist in 1882, uh, isolated a frog's heart, and he discovered that... It could be on its own because the heart as some people might know generates its own heartbeat independent of neural control yeah. so he found that when he bathed it in a saline solution containing sodium chloride that the heart beat on its own so he determined that only sodium chloride was necessary for the heart to beat however a year later in 1883 he discovered that his saline solution had been prepared using tap water rather than distilled water. (laughs) Which is a big (laughs) no-no because... He can therefore no longer conclude that it was sodium chloride that was making the heartbeat because there's contaminants from the tap water. Mm -hmm. And in the paper issuing the retraction, the actual quote is, I discovered that the saline solution which I had used had not been prepared with distilled water, but with pipe water, tap water, supplied by the New River Water Company. Which, I, I just love the wording as well, because it says, I discovered the solution which I had used had not been distilled properly. <laughs> had not been prepared correctly. Just, just like, put the blame on like, someone else. He's, just, he's completely throwing the blame <laughs> on someone else, which is brilliant. Oh. Um, and he actually found that when he repeated the experiment using distilled water, that the sodium chloride alone did not make the heart pump. Mm. And so he he concluded that it was one of the contaminants in the tap water that actually made the heart beat so he took the tap water and slowly readded the contaminants one by one to find out which of the ones which of the contaminants was actually causing the beat okay and it wasn't until he readded uh, calcium chloride that the heart resumed the normal beat and that's why we now know that it is calcium that is the essential ion in muscle contraction and it's actually the only ion that can activate contractile machinery in any muscle in the body. Oh wow. Okay. Which is why calcium is so important. So drink your milk, kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I just love that little story <laughs> <That's cool>. like <laughs> Yeah. It just shows how people can make mistakes, mm. even scientists make mistakes. Yeah, and somehow if this retraction hadn't been issued, it would have changed science. Like, we would not have known to look for calcium. Uh, we would have continued believing that only sodium chloride was required. Mm. And so, luckily, this retraction was published, which nowadays... I mean, the title starts off with a further contribution, yeah, which doesn't happen nowadays because it's not going to get sent out for peer review because it's not unique. Like, It's not adding to science, it's just continuing on like a little bit. Like, it's probably going to be a repeat. So, they'll see the title and won't issue it for peer review. Mm. So, luckily, it was sent out for peer review, and the rest is history. We now know all about calcium in the heart. Yeah. And it's just really interesting seeing where we've got to Mm. from history and just reading about the progress we've made. I mean, I was
1: reading a story um, about a. Doctor, I can't remember what year it was, um, it was actually locked up into a mental asylum for suggesting that doctors who've just performed autopsies should wash their hands before delivering babies. Yeah. And the scientific community ridiculed him for this, which is just amazing to think. Um, yeah. They didn't seem to uh, gather the fact that as soon as he and all his colleagues washed their hands, mother mortality dropped uh, when they were delivering babies. Um, But obviously a big part of it back then was that they didn't have the antibacterial soaps and they had to wash their hands.
0: This was was before the whole theory of bacteria had even arisen. They didn't know. He
1: was one of the first people to assume that maybe it was something like what we now know as bacteria. But they had to wash their hands with lime and it just completely dried their hands out and made them kind of cracked bloody messes. So you can understand maybe why they weren't washing their hands, but...
0: Yeah, I love reading about like little mistakes just because of they didn't have the technology and they didn't have the knowledge. Mm. Well, this has been an interesting episode from receptors of the heart cell to the autistic spectrum.
1: Yeah, and we've had a look into the coffees we've been drinking and as well as some great music suggestions from both of us.
0: So if you want to know more about the coffee or read the papers we've been discussing, everything will be linked in the show notes along with our Twitter at brood 4
1: and be sure to subscribe on your podcast service of choice, and we'll see you next week.